Hi guys, Zach here. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash cinematary. This gives you access to over 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, and Kindle, as well as an MP3 player. Right now, I'm reading Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, and the making of a masterpiece by Michael Benson. But Audible users can also access other film books, such as Hank and Jim, The 50-Year Friendship of Henry Fonda and James Stewart by Scott Iman, or Five Came Back by Mark Harris. Again, the link to get your 30-day free trial is www.audibletrial.com slash cinematary. One more time, www.audibletrial.com slash cinematary. Now, on to the show. Welcome to episode 196 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I am here with Jessica Carr and Andrew Swafford. And in today's episode, we will be talking about movies we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be continuing our Young Critics Watch All Movies series with 1932's Merrily We Go to Hell. Um, but first, let's go ahead and jump into movies we saw this week. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the Nashville Film Festival, which Andrew and Jessica both attended this past week. So take it away, guys. Yes. So we were press at the Nashville Film Festival, um, seemingly the only members of the press at the Nashville Film Festival. Um, and the, the festival is still ongoing, still ongoing at the time of this podcast being released as well as the time we're recording it. Um, so that should let you know that we did not get a chance to see everything at the festival. It is uh, scheduled as being two-plus weekends. Um, and, of course, we were coming in from out of town, being in Knoxville. Um, and, therefore, we didn't get to ca- catch a lot of the big titles, like, for example, of Eighth Grade um, and First Reformed. Um, are big, like A24 movies that we will get to see later on in the year, but weren't able to catch the festival just because of some scheduling issues. That, To be perfectly frank, the schedule the, the festival is not scheduled great. Um, you know, they don't start screening films until the afternoon, um, and so that kind of limits how many things you can actually see if you're only in for a weekend. Uh, but we were able to catch a lot of stuff, and we're going to talk about a couple highlights as well as one low light in this part one. Um, and we will start with what I think is maybe my favorite film of the festival, which is uh, The Big Bad Wolf and Other Tales, um, an animated film directed by the creators of Ernest and Celestine from a couple years ago, a French animated film. Uh, so I'm going to kick this to Jessica to introduce it. Yeah, it was definitely the most delightful out of all of the movies that we saw. I was most looking forward to it because I heard what Zach had to say about it when he uh, saw it at the Chattanooga Film Festival. So I kind of already knew what I was getting into it, getting into with it. But with the other movies that we saw, like we didn't really know what we were getting into. So this was a French animated anthology film. It had 
three stories in it total, and the movie was framed as a play that these animals were putting on. So it was a really cute film. I think out of the three stories, I think the Big Bad Fox story was my favorite out of all of them. Um, And me and Andrew talked about this, but I actually feel like that was the strongest out of the three stories that were told. And I feel like they could have stretched that out to be just a feature film by itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if there's one thing that this movie doesn't um, do well for me, it's that I don't know if the anthology um, format is necessarily the best fit for this movie. I I really enjoyed all three of the little stories that were presented to us in this movie. Um, but um, I, I think that it lacks a certain amount of substance, even though this is my favorite film of the festival, I think. Um, and I think that just has to do with the fact that they're they're not really digging deep into one particular story. They're just using these three stories as excuses to, uh, you know, find as many possible gags as they can in, in the various scenarios they've created. Uh, the first one involves um, some anthropomorphized animals having to deliver a baby. Uh, because a tired stork is kind of giving giving them that baby as a chore. Uh, the center, the, the one in the center of the film is uh, a fox that can't, uh, you know, hunt chickens. So he steals some eggs and raises some chicks who think that they're foxes because he's their mom. Uh, and then lastly, we have a really inexplicably like holiday themed uh, <laughs> short about uh, animals that are under the impression that Santa Claus is real and needs saving and goes go out to save Santa Claus and save Christmas. It's weird, but man, if I didn't laugh like constantly throughout this film, it, it is really, really funny. Uh, they, they managed to find gags um, in every possible corner, every possible minute of the film. Like even before the first um, short gets started, there are all of these false starts and uh, postponements of the first short you're about to see. Um, and so it's, it seems like they're, they're finding places for humor like in the spaces in between jokes as well um, that I really appreciated. Um, and it, it, one thing that I like about this compared to a lot of the other films I saw at the National Film Festival is that it knows exactly what it wants to be and it's being that perfectly and what it wants to be here is basically a series of Looney Tunes um, and one of it, it is very much a classical Looney Tune um, in, in just like the specific types of uh, like visual references that it's making and, and cartoonish gags that it's throwing at you like for example there's a scene where a bunch of characters uh, stand on each other's shoulders and you know wear a trench coat to pretend to be a human uh, there's, there's a scene there's multiple scenes where the lights get turned out and the screen is black but you see like people's eyes glowing white there's scenes where people are getting dragged off of stage with canes because they're not funny or whatever you know it, it's the only thing that's missing is like an anvil dropping on somebody's head and, and they they revive this almost dead format um really really well and i you know one of the things that zach mentioned in his piece um after the Chattanooga Film Festival is that it's a shame that a movie like this is not going to be seen by broad American audiences. It's a shame that we don't get lots of these types of movies all the time because it's just so much better than your standard kids fare. It is so effective in like 
how well it hammers home jokes and how like pure hearted it is. Um, but I think that this would really play well to a wide audience. I mean, we saw it with like five other people, but everybody was cracking up the whole time. Uh, so Zach, any other thoughts about Big Bad Fox and other tales? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just echo a lot of the things that you said. It the I felt I agree with your point that it is this kind of anthology of three different stories. Um, and I think that that is a little bit of the hindrance to the film, because if they just focused on one of them specifically, I, I think, or, you know, and made like three different films with these characters, it would have been fantastic. I feel like it could have been a still as good and as fulfilling as this, you know, version of it was. Um, I think that was one of the things that was so nice about Ernest and Celestine because it contained a little bit of that slapstick gag uh, humor, but it, it it fleshed out a story and, and dealt with some, some themes that bordered on much darker than the colorful texture that the film uh, has. And this one doesn't do that, and it's not because it's lacking in amb- well I guess it is because it's lacking in ambition because the, the stories just don't have enough time to uh, to, to you know venture into that territory even though I feel like there would be room where they could like you know deal with some much more adult uh, you know a little bit heavier themes not to say that it like like that Ernest and Celestine gets very dark but it, it does grapple with with things that are much more are kind of interesting in the confines of this this very uh very peaceful very uh loving animated form but I really enjoyed uh the big bad fox and other tales I think that like like you said I I mentioned before it's a movie that I feel like should be the prototypical uh, kids fair whenever you know you're taking kids to the movies like there's no reason why it has to be this mindless idiotic uh you know dreamworks or illumination animated movie i think that it kid you know a kid and parents could go and see something like this at the movie theater and both would have a good time because yeah you're laughing throughout the whole movie it's a very smart comedic movie um and so if you get a chance to watch this i i, I recommend it it's it, it's a it's a blast g kids has it so they always do a good job good job of distribution and home video release uh, people get the chance to see it this it's sadly a lot of the g kids movies seemed like um their eventual home is the Blu-ray collections of very, you know, smart cinephile, smart cinephile parents who are going to show it to their children. But I, I hope those smart cinephile parents find this. <laughs> They've started to uh, put a lot of their films on Netflix, so maybe keep an eye out on Netflix. They might have it there. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, well, we'll go ahead and move into our second film, which was Jessica's favorite film of the festival. Um, I'm not quite so hot on it, um, but that movie. Um, is blind spotting the auteur of this movie is definitely um, Davi Diggs, um, who is the rapper from the, the hip hop group Clipping, as well as uh, you know a, a Broadway actor from Lin Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. Um, but he wrote and produced the film. He also stars in the film. The director, however, is Carlos Lopez Estrada. This is his first movie. Uh, and Blind Spotting follows a character uh, played by Davi Diggs, um, who is on parole for a charge that we don't really find out about until 
well over halfway into the movie. Uh, but we do know at the very beginning that he is three days out from his parole ending. And so the real tension of the film uh, up front is that he very much wants to not be put in a compromised position where the police might misconstrue him as being someone participating in a crime. Um, and just the, the nature of his life and the nature of the world he lives in means that he um, unintentionally finds himself in a lot of situations where he could be misconstrued as participating in a crime. Uh, like the very first scene of the movie, he is stuck in the back seat of a two-door car uh, where all of a sudden a gun deal starts going down and he has no way, no way to get out of the car. So like, these are the kinds of situations that the character finds himself in. Um, he also um, has a, a friend, uh, like a longtime childhood best friend um, who is very much a like huckster. Uh, he he kind of gets on this, the side of the street and like sell, sells things to people by, you know, his his word play and his the way he can really gussy up a, a pitch for something. And there's like a racial dynamic happening in the movie where the the friend of Davi Diggs um, is white, but very much behaves in many ways that are kind of coded as black in modern American society. And it seems like that character is going some sort of through, going through some sort of identity crisis. Um, and you have this push and pull between Davi Diggs, who kind of wants to be seen as like this very straight laced figure, but kind of can't because there are all of these, uh, you know, st racial stereotypes that people are viewing him through the lens of. Um, and there's, there's a lot of political stuff happening in this movie. It, it makes connections between these very complex issues of police brutality, the criminal justice system, uh, gentrification in Oakland specifically, um, as well as gun ownership. Like the presence of a gun uh, becomes a, a serious point of tension in this movie at various points. Um, I had my issues with it, but uh, Jessica, this was your favorite film of the festival. So what did you think? Yeah, I feel like I feel like it was the most high energy out of all of the films that we saw. Um, I loved the relationship between Colin, Davi Diggs's character, and Miles, um, and they both uh, Davi Diggs and Raphael Cassell they co-wrote the movie together. So I feel like in real life that friendship, that relationship is probably there. Um, and I thought that the writing in this was really strong, even though it was trying to do a lot of things. I feel like the movie is trying to talk about a lot of things and it doesn't really know how to do that effectively to where you can leave the movie with one thing in mind. I had a lot of, a lot of thoughts after watching it, but I think, um, and one thing that we talked about, Andrew, was the, the climax of the film, which I'm not really, I'm not going to spoil it because I know everybody still wants to see this. The climax of the film is where, um, Colin Davi Diggs's character confronts someone with a gun and he raps to them. And, you know, for me, he, he's rapping about a lot of things and it was flowing. It was working. It was building. And I even think in the background, there was like, you could, his heartbeat kind of turned into the beat of his rap that he was doing. And, 
to me, it was a very effective climax for that character because he's expressing all of these anxieties that he's been having throughout the whole film. And it has finally come to a head where he is confronting the person who has caused all of this trauma for him. And he is getting it out with his rap. But I found out that, Andrew, it didn't really work for you. And it kind of came out as cheesy. So why did you feel that way? Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to get too deep into it without talking about spoilers. I think logistically, it doesn't make sense for his character to be in that space, rapping the things he's rapping to the person he's rapping to. Um, I also think that it's just um, very jarring to, for all of a sudden it to become this like rap, this Hamilton style rap musical at at the you know, 80%, 85% mark in the film's runtime. Um, it just came across as a little corny and musical theater-ish to me. Um, and I think that that is, prob- that, that is a problem with the film as a whole um, in that it, do- it doesn't feel particularly cinematic to me. Um, there are a lot of montage sequences set to music with a lot of whip pans between uh, various types of houses and various pieces of graffiti throughout the Oakland neighborhood. Uh, but for the most part, uh, the film doesn't seem like it has a lot of cinematic style to it. Um, everything is just like weirdly brightly lit and doesn't seem to have a sense of atmosphere. Um, and I think that it is an incredibly smart film in the, the way that it's able to juggle a all of these various tones that it's going for, because, it, you know, it's, it's a it's a film that's marked by um, grief and trauma and stress and fear. Uh, but it's also a film that's very lighthearted. You could describe it as a buddy comedy. Um, and it's able to do those things, but it's also able to connect all of these disparate dots of, um, you know, urban inequality in America, whether that be gentrification or police brutality or whatever. It, it's able to show them as this larger web of like what you might call white supremacy. All of these issues are interrelated, whether you think of them as interrelated or not. I, I think that the, the film does a deft job at making those connections. However, I don't think it does a particularly cinematic job of making those connections uh, because everything is so on the surface. Um, you have characters just like having straight up conversation about what it means that hipsters are moving into Brook uh, into Oakland. Sorry. Um, you have you know, this climactic scene where a character wraps the theme of the movie to the antagonists of the movie. Um, it just seems to be screaming all of the things that it thinks um, and not necessarily giving you a world that's a little bit more mundane, a little bit more lived in um, that shows you characters in a, a visceral situation that you can, you know, live with them in and observe and then kind of make your own uh, speculations about the like the ramifications or the thematic connections of those decisions afterwards. Um, I think about it in relation to two recent films, one of which is Fruitvale Station by Ryan Coogler, which I think does a really good job at like pr- presenting the the mundane everyday nature of living in this type of neighborhood, also in California. Um And then I also think of Good Time by the Safdie brothers, which does a lot of the same things thematically as blind spotting, but it 
all, always presents those ideas as kind of existing on the periphery of the story, and you have to look for them. You have to go back and kind of reinterpret the film after you've seen it to get an idea of what's going on under the surface of that movie, because otherwise it's this weird, inexplicable, like nocturnal thriller. Whereas Blind Spotting always feels like a message movie. Um, and that's fine, and I, I'm glad that it exists, and I think that uh, people will respond well to it. Uh, it's it, To me, it doesn't have that same sort of resonance or staying power as a movie like Fruitvale Station or Good Time. But it was definitely genuinely funny. It was, yeah, yeah. The scene in which they describe like what Davi Diggs' character like actually did, it's not really, it's not funny to him in the moment when it's being described, but the narrator mm-hmm. who is narrating it is hilarious. It, it uses for voiceover narration in a way that I again would compare to Good Time and the the monologue about the Sprite bottle in Good Time. Both of those um, examples are, are using voiceover narration to kind of give you this weird um, distance and juxtaposition from what you're actually seeing in the montage on screen and cutting back and forth between uh, the the memories that are being recounted and the person actually uh, explaining those memories. And that that is a scene that in Blind Spotting uses the, the weird uh, dual-toned nature of the movie uh, to, to great effect because the, the tragedy that you're seeing and the comedy that you're hearing is totally the point of that scene. Most of the movie kind of swings back and forth between those two feelings, but uh, I, I agree that's like the strongest moment of the movie for me. Um, anyways, let's move on to our next one, um, which was neither of our favorite of the festival, but definitely made a big impression because uh, this movie is strange um, and bold, and that is uh, On Chesil Beach. Uh, Jessica, tell us about it. Yeah, so let's talk about On Chesil Beach. Starring the world's best actress, Saoirse Ronan. (laughs) It is a period piece that centers on a couple who is newly married. And it is 1962. And they're having their honeymoon on Chesil Beach. And really, this is a very complicated synopsis to describe because when you watch the trailer, it looks like the whole movie is going to take place on their honeymoon night and they are trying to consummate their marriage. And it technically is the way that the movie is happening, but you also have that whole entire thing framing the flashbacks that are happening in the meantime. So the movie kind of jumps around in time a lot. So, Andrew, what did you... Whew, it's, uh, lots of conflicting feelings about On Chesil Beach. Um, to speak to the flashback thing, this movie uses more heavy use of flashback than maybe any movie I've ever seen. You know, you, you have this... Um, you essentially have two scenes in this movie. You have the scene where they're in their honeymoon suite trying to have sex and failing. Um, and then you also have a scene of them on the titular Chesil Beach talking about what went wrong in the honeymoon suite. Um, and... In the first scene, uh, you know, if you compressed all of it together, it would maybe be 10 minutes, but they stretch it out to well over an hour because after, you know, every 
significant line or after every significant gesture or touch, they will find a way to connect it back to a moment in the past for these characters. Maybe a moment before they met each other, maybe a memory that they share together. Maybe they're sharing some sort of uh, secret uh, thing about themselves that nobody else knows. But that hotel scene is weirdly a masterful uh, work of editing where you know, many times I would get invested in what's going on in the hotel scene and then I would get frustrated that I would be pulled out of it by the flashback. But, you know, thinking about the connections they're making, there's always some sort of very smart um, reason why this memory is connected to, you know, this particular moment in the hotel. It reminds me very much of some of the stream of consciousness writers of the early 20th century, like Virginia Woolf or James Joyce, where, you know, for Virginia Woolf, you can read a short story of hers and it'll be 25, 30 pages of just two characters sitting across from each other on the train and like the various memories and thoughts that occur to them uh, as they are looking at each other's faces, um, you you really get that sense of like compressed time um, in these hotel this hotel sequence. And then you have the second scene where they're they're talking about what just happened, and that is a long, extended, uncut conversation that could kind of work as its own one act play. Um, but I would not describe it as theatrical. I think that the director of this movie is always um, doing intelligent things with uh, framing um, and editing and blocking of the characters. You're going to show how their dynamic is shifting based on you know how the camera is showing them to you. Uh, however, <laughs> what this what this movie does, there's there's kind of two issues that are that are you know bouncing around my head regarding on Chesil Beach. One is that I'm not sure how people are going to take it on a representational level um, because we have a character here who is uh, maybe uh, suffering the effects of trauma because of sexual abuse. We have a character here who is maybe um, asexual or demisexual. Um, maybe the character is both of these things at the same time, but it, it very much leaves those things ambiguous um, and maybe leaves the door open for you to think that an asexual person is just a traumatized person, which I, I think that some some people will not take kindly to. Um, but the, the other issue that I have with the movie is that it continues onward after that second long extended conversation scene and and goes to some places that I don't necessarily know it needs to go. Um, in the last 30 minutes of the film, it almost becomes like a Mountains Made Depart-esque drama where you're bouncing around in the future. Um, it shows you a scene in the 19... Well, the, the whole film takes place in the 1960s for the most part. But then in the last act, you get a, a long sequence in the 1970s and then a long sequence in the 2000s in which Saoirse Ronan and the male lead are both wearing, you know, elderly people makeup and I kind of feel like it's a Johnny Knoxville bad grandpa situation where I can't ever completely divorce the idea of this is just a young person wearing fake makeup um, and there's this heartfelt like heartstrings pulling moment that is supposed to happen at the very last moments of the film and I felt a little distanced from it 
because I thought the makeup was a little goofy. But <laughs> this the film is incredibly ambitious with how much it's doing um, with time um, and editing and framing. This is a movie that could very easily be uh, you know, this lazy prestige Oscar bait picture. Um, but instead it tries to, it tries to become this like mammoth undertaking of like scope and scale and taking this tiny interaction that these, this, these, this couple has with each other and like fitting the entire history of the relationship and like the entire history of like the, the later part of the 20th century into this one moment in the hotel room. And it's, uh, like, crazy to think about just like how bold of a move that is i was not expecting veron chesel beach to be the movie that it ended up being um so regardless of my misgivings with the film um it is probably the movie that has made the greatest impression that i saw at the national film festival i think that um big bad, big bad fox is the movie that is doing what it wants to do the best but this is the movie that really reached for the stars for me, and I was just, I was I was very impressed by it. Uh, Jessica, any, any other thoughts about On Chesilbeek? Yeah, I think Saoirse Ronan gives an amazing performance in this, and she really, she's so captivating in everything that she does with this character, because you really feel everything that is happening in the bedroom with them and how much she wants to please him, but she just can't. And I think that all of that is a testament to what Saoirse Ronan does with the character. Absolutely. Um, she is awesome in this. This might be my favorite acting performance of hers. Um, I will also say before we leave this movie behind that um, I was shocked after we got out of the theater to go on Letterboxd and see that this has almost unanimously like one star, two star reviews. Um and nobody has really elaborated on why that is, um, or at least not to my liking. <laughs> so um, I'm curious to see what the discourse is around this movie once it actually gets a wide release. Because it's weird. It's such a strange movie for the kind of like period drama that it is. Um, anyway, so we have time to talk about one more. Or should we wrap up and go into part two? I think we should, we have to talk about Laplace's demon. I feel like it's necessary. <laughs> okay, we're going to talk about our, our one dud of our weekend at the festival, um, the Laplace's demon. Jessica, tell us about it. All right, so the Laplace's demon is an Italian black and white horror film that me and Andrew saw on our second day of the festival, but it was the day that we were watching four films total. So it started at like 9.30 at night, and we were already super tired by the end of the day, but Andrew was like, we have to fit in a horror film. We have to do it. And so we decided to go to this, and I should have known that whenever a guy with a neck beard, like comes up and introduces the movie and says that he loves it and it's the absolute best, that it's probably going to be the absolute worst. Um, but it's basically it's basically a murder mystery movie where all of these scientists get a signal and they get called to this mansion on a hilltop 
up in the middle of the sea and they are there to do research or show their research to this guy. And surprise, it's not really, you know, for him to see their research. It's for him to conduct an experiment on them. And (laughs) this movie was so stupid, but it was literally like, it's literally like if, uh, if a physicist decided to turn their thesis into a movie, but they were like, my audience isn't going to understand what this movie is about. So let me explain it in the exact same way a bajillion times in the film. I think that I need to take your, your premise a synopsis a little further um, so that people can understand what exactly they're in for if they end up watching Laplace's Demon. So you you have this ragtag team of scientists and the thing they're studying specifically is if they drop a glass off of a table and they they know all of the variables of the environment and whatever, they can predict exactly how many shards the glass is going to fall into basically what they want to find out is can you mathematically figure out like predestination right Uh, can you find out there's no true randomness in the universe that everything is preordained and then they get to this place and what the castle that is like on top of a ridiculous hill like a ridiculous hill island thing um Once they get there, um, they find a room that has a model of the castle in it. Um, And then they look closer and they find out that inside that model there are chess pieces. And the chess pieces are standing exactly where they're standing, looking at a smaller model of the castle. Um, And apparently (laughs) this model is this uh, like big uh, automated clockwork machine that is programmed to follow their every moment or every movement. But it has been programmed in advance. So the person who programmed it knows exactly where they are going to go um, based on what it knows about their personalities and what it knows about all the various threats and which way they're going to push them. But it also knows some weirdly specific things like which directions they're going to pace around the room when they're bored. Um, And it's just sort of a preposterous premise, to be perfectly honest. Um, And like you said, Jessica, the film explains the point which is that human beings do not truly have free will all things are predetermined you can measure anything you if we had enough information we could tell the future it says this out loud about 50 times over the course of the film they um, mention they have to mention the glass thing like 50 times yeah i mean they they keep cutting back to this stupid computer program that they made to like measure shards of glass that are broken and we should also note this is incredibly low budget film so maybe we shouldn't be shitting on it so much but um one of the ways in which you can tell it is low budget that they've leaned into the fact that they don't have a lot of resources so they film almost everything on like one sound stage as well as a lot of fake sets a lot of cgi sets a lot of rear projection and green screen um and it just looks very fake the whole film is um in this old creepy gothic black and white format seemingly just to hide some of the you know low production value uh, this this film is made under and it also has this greenish blue tint to it just to make it 
feel like the film itself is old. You're watching an old beaten up celluloid print of this Italian giallo classic or something. Um, And that gets at the heart of what this movie does wrong for me, which is that um, it, it wants to be a throwback to an old kind of movie, this like Agatha Christie style, like Twilight Zone giallo thing. But it thinks that the way to be an old movie is to be a bad movie. It's it's almost condescending <laughs> towards like old cinema, um, like to the point where a lot of the subtitles, the, the dubbing is done very badly because, you know, Itali- old Italian films had dubbing and not all it was great. And even though this is 2018 and they could probably afford to do a good dub job, they intentionally do a bad dub job. So it feels like an old movie. And like there are even parts where the subtitles aren't Good, Like they're intentionally misspelling words or capitalizing things that don't need to be capitalized or doing the punctuation or the grammar wrong because they think that that gives some sort of air of authenticity to what an old film is like. Again, a bad film. And I this the, the thing is interminable. I was so bored and again it just keeps giving you the same tired point and these characters are in the same room and there's nothing they can do cinematically because they're stuck in this false space uh, and they don't have the budget to do anything interesting with CGI and the characters are all these you know one note you know sub B picture caricatures of these Agatha Christie archetypes Um, three of the men like look and act exactly the same um, that you can't even get invested in the character relationships or the power dynamics or anything like that Um, and once you realize that all these characters are going to be killed off in exactly the same way it is crushing to realize there's like eight of them left to go and you're just gonna watch all eight of them slowly be taken in in the exact same way while they're explaining this theme statement that the film has to share. Um, and God, by the time the, the final scenes rolled around, we, we were just laughing hysterically with like how tedious this movie was. And we were the only people laughing, so I apologize if there's anybody from the screening who was annoyed with us. But, geez. Uh, any, any other thoughts about Laplace's demon? Jessica? Nah, two thumbs down. It was Snoozeville. <laughs> Snoozeville all Snoozeville the way. Snoozeville is right. All right, so that's the National Film Festival. Jessica and I are going to have a write-up of all the films we saw at the festival um, coming out, I think, next Monday uh, or next Wednesday. So stay tuned on the Cemetery website for that. Um, that's all we got. All right, well, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back talking 1932's Merrily We Go to Hell after this. Hey Cinematariots, this is your co-host Lydia Creech with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematariot would like you to know that we do not want your money and we don't want to place ads in the show at this time either. That's not why we do this. We do it because we enjoy each other's company and we want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema. However, there are a few things you can do to help out the show that we would greatly appreciate. First, leave us a review on iTunes, four or five stars only. To help us reach more listeners, per the algorithm gods. Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send us an email at Zach at Cinematary.com. That's Zach, Z-A-C-H, so we can hear from you guys for a change. 
I'd especially like to hear if you're a human and not an android who also likes Blade Runner, or maybe you have a suggestion of a movie you would really like to hear our opinions on. Regardless, let us know your thoughts and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes of the show. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions that we bring to you guys every week. So, to recap, review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, and please share with your friends and family. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. with part two of episode 196 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movie series with 1932's Merrily We Go to Hell. Uh, the film was directed by Dorothy Arzner and it was written by Edwin Just uh, Justice Meyer. The film stars Sylvia Sidney, Friedrich Mark, and Adriana Allen. Uh, the film follows an heiress who marries a news reporter with a weakness for booze and his blonde ex-girlfriend. Uh, the film's title is an example of the sensationalistic titles that were common in the pre-code era. The working title of the film was Jerry and Joan, and according to a news item in Variety, the LA Times refused to print the title of the film in its advertisements, although it was printed in their review. No other newspapers you know, decided to do that for a publicity stunt. Arzner broke into the film industry starting out as a stenographer in 1919 at Paramount Studios, rapidly moving up as a screenwriter and later as a film editor on Fred Niblo's 1922 version of Blood and Sand. As an editor, screenwriter, and script doctor, Arzner was much in demand, but Paramount refused to give her the chance to direct a feature film. Incensed, uh, Arzner finally threatened to move to Columbia Pictures, where Columbia studio head Harry Cohen was actively courting her as a director and uh, scenarist. Dismayed at the prospect of losing her services altogether, Paramount relented, and she soon became one of the studio's most prolific directors, directing such box office hits as Fashion for Women in 1927, Ten Modern Commandments in 1927, Get Your Man in 1927, and The Wild Party 1929, her first sound film starring the it girl Clara Bow. Merrily We Go to Hell was her last movie at Paramount. After the film, she quit to freelance, but directed only a handful of handful of features for other studios after that from 1943 until her death in 1979 arsner was unable to get any another directorial assignment although she taught some of the first college film classes at ucla and directed numerous pepsi cola commercials at the behest of joan crawford who is married to the president of the company she also directed training films for the women's army during world war ii in the new york times review of the film they believed that it was wildly funny in stretches and described the acting by the two leads as excellent but believed the scenes in which march played intoxicated went nowhere and that the script was lacking jesse burns of script criticized the casting of friedrich mark in the film finding him to be unconvincing though thought that adriana allen showed her star quality in her portrayal of an otherwise artificial character 
So on that note, let's talk a little bit about Merrily We Go to Hell. Um, first off, just fantastic title. Um, but I, 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 I just love the title. But uh, I guess the, the first point that I kind of wanted to talk about, and this can kind of be a little bit of a arm to our first episode of the series when we talked about some of the pre-1920s female directors, because Dorothy Arzner was doing films at that time. But we decided since we were going to do this movie to just kind of save off on doing anything before this one. Uh, what did it, you know? What struck you about? kind of the the content of the film how the content was uh was portrayed you know did it did did having dorothy arsner behind the camera make a difference you know if rather than having like somebody like howard hughes or billy wilder or somebody doing something kind of like a preposterous plot like this jessica i'm curious to hear your thoughts here because you've seen more arsner than i have you watched uh, dance girl dance for a class right um so i i didn't get a whole lot from the directorial decisions um, of this film, but maybe you can enlighten us on what overlaps you see. Yeah, I thought that in general, Arzner kept it pretty subdued. I don't think that she really goes overboard and she kind of just lets the melodrama play out itself because I think that this is definitely a melodramatic film in that if she would have done anything more complicated with the with the camera work or with anything like that, that it might have been too much for the audience because I don't know how you guys felt about it, but it was just like a roller coaster of a relationship. And it was a very stressful movie to watch for me because I felt like Joan was just getting taken advantage of the entire time. And from the beginning, Jerry is an absolutely terrible person to be in a relationship. Like, not like he's definitely a drunk, which is terrible, but he's also just very inconsiderate. And he just calls her swell, and he doesn't say I love you or say any of his feelings. And everybody warns her about him, but she marries him anyway. And then, so I was, like, just angrily watching it the entire time and I didn't really get wrapped up in the melodrama until they are married and they start having an open relationship and then I was just like okay well I'm definitely in the movie and I want to know what happens um but yeah I don't know I I I definitely like dance girl dance better but I was still interested in what happened in this movie. I asked the the question at the beginning because I was kind of curious when we talked about um, the films by Alice Gee and Lois Weber uh, specifically, you know, I'm thinking of like how men propose and the consequences of feminism, which are these, you know, wickedly satirical and funny uh, short films. And I, I, it, it was they were both things that I could never see a male director pulling off or understanding the nuances of why this is kind of funny. Uh, and, and that's what you know made it so special because both of them were able to both uh, Guy and Weber just had such a sense of where to find the comedy in that. And with merely we go to hell, I feel like there was, um, there was definitely ways that, there could have been 
you know, some kind of gender gender swapped comedy found. But yeah, it, it, it kind of was just very by the books. I was I was looking for maybe something a little bit more witty, a little bit more cutting and it was the the knife was kind of dull. You know, it just it didn't do much. It didn't it didn't cut as much as I guess I wanted to, which is I don't know. It's just it was disappointing to me. I've seen some reviews talk about uh, Dorothy Arzner creating space for her actors to just act like she doesn't really let the framing or the editing or the camera work get in the way of the conversations and the melodrama happening throughout the movie. I don't know. To me, that that kind of feels like we're calling the absence of style actually style. But one thing that I I definitely do get a sense of here um, in terms of characterization and and plot and thematics is I think there's a lack of slack that's cut for the male lead um, that probably a male director, for example, like Ernst Lubitsch or somebody maybe would bend over backward to ask you to find him charming. You know, a lot of the, the characters in Ernst Lubitsch movies, um, they are horrible bastards, but you really enjoy watching them because they're very witty or because they have just like a, a, a bubbly chemistry with the other characters around them. Um, and here, Dorothy Arzner frames that character as just being this walking red flag of like a, someone that women need to avoid at all costs. Um, and I could also imagine a, a male director looking at the female lead of Merrily We Go to Hell in an unsympathetic light um, and, and essentially judging her by saying, well, she made her choice. This is what she asked for. This is her fault. Whereas I think Dorothy Arzner has a slightly more nuanced view of things um, where we kind of understand this character's desire to be with the version of her lover that she hopes he is, even though that we kind of see from an outsider's perspective that he's not really that. And like she's always trying to see the best in him when it's not always necessarily there. Um, there, there are these these dynamics in the relationship that uh, get repressed uh, just out of sake of trying to not make waves. Um, and the movie does an interesting, like woozy back and forth between who the protagonist actually is in a way that I would maybe compare to like P.T. Anderson's Phantom Thread, um, where you're. It's not necessarily that your allegiances are shifting, but who you're following is shifting. And but you are always looking at the character that you're following through the lens of Dorothy Arzner's perspective of like who is kind of in the wrong here. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, there's definitely some phantom thread elements in this where you, it, it, you're kind of supposed to, I guess... Um, find some sort of sympathy or empathy or whatever towards the 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 kind of decrepitness of this relationship. Like it's a it's a bad relationship, but clearly the badness is what attracts both people to it. And you know, especially when you get to the scenes later on where Friedrich March's character is is you know, spending his time on the side with his ex-girlfriend and uh, Sylvia Sidney's character is, is with Cary Grant. Like, I guess it's this like weird um, power dynamic 
uh, kind of chess game that she's kind of trying to play. But I, it, it, it again, it goes back to it just it didn't really cut or was as effective as I think it wanted to be. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. Um, for me, um, the film is is not super compelling like you were talking about. It, it moves at this slow kind of humdrum pace even though it's less than 90 minutes long it felt a lot longer than it was i am interested in the movie more like as a cultural artifact more of a historical artifact as this intersection between a lot of different historical movements you know this is coming out um near the end of prohibition um which of course you know people who may not know uh, the 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 movement to make prohibition happen was like a a pre 1920 uh, women's movement uh, before women got the right to vote. Um, a lot of women were campaigning for alcohol to be uh, banned because it was women and children that bore the brunt of alcoholism inside the home. You, you kind of see that happen. You you, you see um, the effects of alcoholism inside of the home come to light here. So, so you have the end of prohibition as being like one of the historical fe- uh, threads that is, that is weaving into the fabric of this movie. You also have the beginning of the Great Depression. There's there's this moment where um, the female lead at, there, she's at a party with like Cary Grant of all people in like one of his first roles, and everybody is drinking and laughing and having a good time. And and she says, "Has anybody heard about the Depression?" And somebody laughs and says, "Like you mean the one on the small of your back?" Uh, like these are these are characters who are blissfully unaware of like the economic realities of of the world at the time that this is an heiress that we're following though we're still being asked to you know very much take sympathy with her plight uh, and then you also have you know we're, we're we're at the end of the 1920s decade so there's this backsliding of the ideas of like the new woman and the modern woman. The, the flapper is kind of dead by this point. Um, and you see this female lead kind of falling back into more traditional subservient female roles um, in, in a way that might be um, like deflating or disappointing for, for a modern viewer when they get to the end of this movie and you find out that she, she takes her uh, lover back after all of the cruelty that she's had to endure over the course of the movie. Um, I, I wonder if that is Dorothy Arzner like being really sincere in her wish for these characters to be together or if that's the studio forcing her hand or if she's trying to do something a little bit more nuanced and complicated with it. But you also have historically like this is before the Hayes Code. Um, kicks in so the movie can be a lot more crude and unapologetic um, with its discussion of sex and its depiction of drunkenness um, so I mean it's just a, a weird influx of all these different historical moments they, they create a, a movie that you know maybe could have been should have been a little bit more um, inflammatory than it actually is uh, looking back on it uh, it's definitely like a weird historical artifact. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It, it it is very strange because, well, like I said, it's not as cutting as I would like to be. It does, you know, push the boundaries of what you would expect a, a pre 
you know a, a pre-code early hollywood movie to be i mean you you do have this character who is in a consistent state of being drunk you have uh the characters who are flaunting their uh adulterous affairs later in the film um you have just uh yeah i mean you have this this heiress who is uh kind of swooping into to save this this man who is you know like we've said is just a terrible person but I don't know. It, it, there, there, there are these these buttons that it's pushing that you know after the code was enforced and and something you don't necessarily see in a lot of much more popular uh, early Hollywood movies. But yeah, I, you know, I, I I don't know if that's if it kind of I, I don't know if it's one of those where the studio got involved or if that was the original choice. But the ending is kind of. It, it, I thought it was going in a much different different direction and was going to kind of leave him stranded. And I felt like that would have vindicated a little bit of the story up to that point. And it didn't do that. And um, I don't know. It, it, when I, I kind of was just like, oh, well, it, it really took the wind out of that sail. <laughs> yeah. Jessica, what do you think of the very end of this movie where she decides to take this dude back? Oh, the ending is so infuriating. And <laughs> I I kind of and it's, it happens so abruptly because, you know, you find out that her baby died and then she is calling for Jerry in the hospital bed and he shows up and all of a sudden they're kissing and rubbing faces and then it just says the end and it the the it just happens so abruptly like it just ends and it almost feels like a punch in the face when it ends because you're like are you serious like is she really taking him back and so i wondered how we're supposed to interpret that ending like would audiences at the time of this film feel like wow okay Okay, yeah, that was a really good ending. So glad they got back together. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I could maybe see uh, an early 1930s audience maybe not being ready for the ending where um, they don't get back together. Like that would just maybe be too frustrating or anticlimactic. You want a happy ending at all costs, even if it's at the the expense of the thematic message that the movie is trying to send or, or seems to be sending. Um I also think that there's a weird thing going on, like I said earlier, about the protagonist and the perspective of the movie switching a couple times over the course of the runtime. Um, right before he comes to see her in the hospital and we find out the baby is dead and she decides to take him back for whatever reason, we've been following him for the last 10, 15, 20 minutes. And so we, we essentially have no... Um, reference point for how she is feeling and how she is wrestling with their separation, though we do know that she's, um, you know, putting all of his letters back in the mailbox returned to sender. Um, so there, there's this weird sense of that ending not being earned when he comes to her and she decides to take him back um, because we we have not seen her motivation for wanting to get back with him. It rings false, and I wonder if Dorothy Arzner wants it to rings fa- ring false. Like that is meant to be a hollow, obligatory ending, in the way that some like Oscar Wilde stories have this hollow, obligatory ending that's meant to make you feel weird. Um, 
or if we are just supposed to go with it. They're like, like I said, the 1930s audience maybe just wants a, a happy ending where the couple's together for the sake of a happy ending where the couple is together. Um, she she doesn't do a whole lot to subvert it. Uh, Zach, sorry. It's kind of interesting to compare this. Uh, the same year that this movie came out, uh, Trouble in Paradise, the Ernst Lubitsch film, which we've talked about previously on this podcast, came out, which is another film that feels even more like it's pushing the boundaries of a pre-code Hollywood and really plays a lot with the, you know, power dynamics of a of a of the relationship at the center of that film and so kind of looking at this film compared to that one it's 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 almost night and day i think trouble in paradise just does so many so much so much more things to really push the boundaries and that this one seems a little safer right that, that is a, very much a film that's doing a lot of um flashy though understated at times uh, things with cinematic style to kind of beguile you into the weird sense of romance that it creates and also like i said it endears you to the characters because of the chemistry they have and because of the the wittiness of the banter um and you also have a similar type of influx of power dynamics that are that are always shifting back and forth um though in ernst lubitsch's movie it, it almost seems to suggest that like everybody's taking advantage of everybody all the time so you know who cares if we take advantage of each other life is just this one big game where we're taking advantage of each other um, whereas Dorothy Arthur's perspective is like no 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 uh, one one half of the human population is being taken advantage of a whole lot more than the other half of the human population um, which I appreciate that perspective though she doesn't bring as much cinematic flair or you know compelling drama to the table as Lubitsch does I guess comparing to other other comedies that you've seen around this time just in terms of the 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 kind of dialogue this the script the the back and forth between the two main characters and other characters in the film i mean is it is is merely we go to hell a film that made you laugh were you entertained by it uh you know, how did it work on that front for you? Well, they say like merrily we go to hell at least like four times in this. So if you actually <laughs> took a shot whenever you did that, you'd probably be as drunk as Jerry was at certain points in the film. But um, he, I don't know if I necessarily thought that it was funny. I thought that there is one line that was really memorable that came from Joan that I think helped make her more of a sympathetic character. And that was when um, she was trying to tell him that she was pregnant at the party, but he wasn't really listening to her. And then he made out with his ex in front of her. And then she went back to the room and was packing and he called her crazy. And she said, yes. if you call me crazy again, I will kill you. <laughs> and that was the one moment where I was like, A, I love that line. And B, OK, I can tell that a woman directed this. Right. I mean, I, that was exactly the line I was going to bring up. We are still fighting the battle of like crazy as an insult towards women today. And I don't think we've made any progress on that fight since you know the early 1930s when Dorothy Arzner wrote this. I still have to talk to my male students about the way that they talk about female characters in books. Like anytime they deviate from the norm or the male character's sense of entitlement, they are eventually they are in, uh, you know inevitably labeled as crazy. Um, and I think that the way that this movie presents the the female perspective and 
we get that insult lobbed in the middle of this this larger context you you know that that is uh, not an acceptable thing to say just because of the, the place in the narrative that it falls in so yeah I, I think that's really smart as well uh, for the most part I felt that the dialogue was a little flat um, kind of going along with the just the pacing and the tone and the style of the film we've talked about um, it just feels like it's lacking something for the most part, aside from a couple of key moments, the, the crazy line being one of them. Uh, any final thoughts on Merrily We Go to Hell before we wrap up? Um, I feel like it's necessary if you want to watch other Dorothy Arzner films, but I do think that Dance Girl Dance is better. So if you really want to start off her filmography, then that one's probably a good starting place and then maybe transition into Merrily We Go to Hell. So how are they different? As somebody who has not seen Dance Girl Dance and has no real context for it, um, what what are the main differences there? I feel like Dance Girl Dance is a little bit flashier. It has to do with with fame and there's, you know, actually dance numbers in it. So it's more visually interesting in that in that way. But also there's a whole entire um, scene where the character looks at the audience and is like, what do you want from me? Am I just an object to you? So very overtly feminist tones in that one, as opposed to this one, which it really seems like they're kind of feminist undertones. Yeah. Undertones is a good way to put it for sure. All right. Well, I believe that'll wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary on Twitter at handle at cinematary and on letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary, where we post all of the movies that we talked about in this episode next week we will be staying in the year 1932 and we will be watching the film vampire uh, and we're going to be joined by guest mark lafanu he uh wrote a piece about the film for its criterion collection release so should be a interesting chat um, I hope everybody's enjoyed the guests that we've had so far in the series. We got a we got a bunch coming up, uh, so please go to cinematary.com. We have the you know the ever updating list of people who will be joining us for this series. Um, but yeah, until then, thank you guys for watching or li- listening. <laughs> See you next week. All right. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. I wanted to take one final moment to remind you to check out Audible and get a free 30-day free trial just for being a listener of Cinematary. You can start your trial by going to www.audibletrial.com slash cinematary and picking through over 180,000 titles that can be accessed from your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, or even your MP3 player. Again, that link is www.audibletrial.com slash cinematary. See you next week.